says, If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Now, as Paul was writing this, we know that he had the church of Philippi in mind. He was writing to this group of people and he was encouraging them to have unity, to love one another, to work together. And yet, as I read verses one through four, it sounds like some similar conversations that I've heard from my mother towards us as children and from Shandy towards my kids as well. <laughs> Notice what she says, not she, but Paul says, but think about as a, as a mother might say it. Son, children, don't you know I love you? Don't you know that I take care of you? Don't you know that I help you and, and wash your clothes? and help to clean up this house and make your dinner? Don't you know that I've cared for you since you were a baby? And I love all of my children the same? Why don't you get along and work together and not fight so much? We're all headed the same direction. We're all part of the same family. We're all trying to work together here. Let's all pitch in and do our and pull an equal load so that we can accomplish the same purpose. Now, that's a, just a very generous paraphrase there. But you can kind of see that idea and what he's talking about there. Let's dig into it a little more with focus. He says, if there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ. He starts off with four different, almost rhetorical questions. Statements of reality. This, these if statements that he starts out here with, these aren't like, well, maybe this is possible. These are actually, these are definites. You could also translate this since, because of this, then this. So let's look at what he says. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ. Consolation in Christ, that word consolation is very similar. It's to the word that Jesus uses when he talks about sending the Holy Spirit. And he calls him a comforter. That the Holy Spirit was going to come and he was going to encourage and comfort. Another good word for this would be encouragement. There is consolation in Christ. There is great encouragement that comes from being united with Christ. Because as we walk with him, we have encouragement. We have blessing. We have help. I like the song. It says, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still. And he says in that song or in the song says very simply that we are to trust and obey. You see, as we trust and obey, there is great encouragement and consolation in Christ. As we think about our mother's and a, what a godly mother is supposed to be, right? She encourages her children. She helps them. And there is great consolation from a mother many times. As a, 
as our little children know, when they're hurt or they have a problem, they go see mommy. Or as Caden's doing right now, he's snuggling on mommy's lap. There's great consolation in mommy. We know that to be true. And let me tell you this. Mothers are wonderful, and I'm thankful for mothers, but mothers are imperfect examples because they're human beings. And that's not to bash on moms. That's just to speak a reality, a truth, right? But the truth is, no matter what your mother is or is not, there absolutely is comfort and consolation in Christ. That's a fact. That is settled. There's nothing that can change that. If you walk with Christ, there is great comfort and encouragement for the believer. We're looking at four realities of a close walk with God. The first one is this, that there's great encouragement that comes from Christ. The second reality is this, that there is comfort in love. Comfort that comes from the love of Christ. Think about this. Because there is love, we have comfort. Right? A child is comforted by his or her mother. They are comforted because they know their mother loves them. Now, if a child is unsure of his mother's love, he doesn't have much comfort, right? And perhaps, maybe as dads, we need to demonstrate love a little better to our children because maybe that's why they always run to mom for comfort when they're hurt because they know mom is going to comfort and help them because they know mom loves them. But whether or not we see that from our mothers, whether or not our mothers are a perfect example of showing comfort and love, we can absolutely be assured that there is comfort in love with Christ. Because Christ has loved us with a perfect love. His love is a self-sacrificing love. And it is willing to give of itself to comfort and to help us. We're going to see that love demonstrated in the next few verses as we get to verse 5 and following. As we see Christ demonstrating His love in His death on the cross for us. Romans 5.8 summarizes it very well. But God commendeth His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ demonstrated His love, right? It was a demonstration of love when He died on the cross for our sin. And and I can take comfort in that. You can take comfort in that. Knowing that you're serving a Savior, you're being asked to give your life to someone, not who is sitting up high somewhere and has no clue what you're going through. Not somebody who could care less when you're struggling or depressed or discouraged. Not somebody who doesn't love you. No, but somebody who loved you so much that he died for you. That's comfort, isn't it? That you can say, you know what? It doesn't matter what I'm going through. The Bible says Jesus has been tempted in all points. In other words, he's faced the same temptations that I face, and yet he did not sin. Jesus has gone through struggle. He's faced the difficulties and felt the pain and the hurt. And yet He still went through all that for me. He still died on the cross for me. You see, there is great comfort in the love of Christ. Sometimes 
Mothers have bad days, right? Sometimes they have good days. Sometimes, perhaps, as children, you don't always feel the comfort of your mother. Hopefully you do. But moms are, while they're wonderful people, they still make mistakes. But Jesus never fails. Jesus never makes a mistake. Jesus always cares for you. And there is great comfort in the love of Jesus. The third reality of a close walk with God is this. That that there is fellowship through this Holy Spirit of God. I love the fellowship of the Spirit. This is not Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring. That's not what he's talking about. This is the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. This is saying, because I have the Holy Spirit living in me, because I'm a believer, and you have the Holy Spirit living in you, if you're a believer, then we can have fellowship. What is fellowship? It's common ground, right? It's two, my pastor growing up used to say, it's two fellows in the same ship, right? They're going the same direction. And as we're going through life, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, and if I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, the Bible says very clearly that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, right? And because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, He gives us direction. He convicts us of sin. He does all kinds of things. He encourages us when we struggle. Jesus called Him the the Comforter in John 14. Right? That the Holy Spirit would come and comfort us. That's all those things that the Holy Spirit does for us. And because of that, because of that happening in me and that happening in you as a believer, we have great fellowship in the Spirit. I've experienced this even with believers that I didn't speak the same language with. say, how is that possible? Well, I got to spend a summer in Mexico. And I learned a lot of Spanish while I was there. But it was wonderful right from the start. As I was around those other believers in the church, there was wonderful fellowship. We became friends. You say, how? You had nothing in common. That's true. We had very little in common. They grew up in a house that looked nothing like my house, most of them. Most of them, their house had a floor very much like this floor. Tile. No carpet in the house. For most of them, not many rugs in the house either. Very little furniture in the house. Very small houses. We even had some people in the church that didn't even have their kitchen in their house. They were poor. And it was too hot to have the kitchen in the house, even though it was a relatively cool place. But the kitchen would heat up the house too much, so they had the kitchen outside under a, under a tarp where they would cook their food, and then they'd bring it inside the house to eat. You say, that's, that's different. Most people didn't have very much. I remember one, one week we had vacation Bible school, which we're going to have here at the end of the summer. And we were picking up boys and girls in the minivan, like, our, like what we just got ourselves, a little minivan like that. It was a, a Chevy Astro minivan, so it was a little bit, little bit different shape. But anyway, we had 23 boys and girls in that minivan at the same time. You say, that's different. <laughs> it is. You know, there was, there was one boy I remember in particular that his parents had nothing, really. And so what they did to make a living, they lived next to the dump. And they would pick through the dump to try to find things that still were somewhat valuable and clean them up and sell them. 
And once a week, there would be like basically a flea market right next to the dump. And all those families that had found things that they could sell or repurpose, they would try to sell them. And that's how they made their living. And they lived in little shacks that they had made out of chunks of corrugated metal and cardboard and boards that they could kind of fit together that they'd found in the dump. And this is where this boy lived. And we picked him up every week or every day for vacation Bible school. And it came around to Sunday. Oh, it's... it. It just makes me, kind of breaks my heart even to think about it today. Came around to that Sunday and we came to pick him up. And he came out wearing a suit and a tie. He had found it, I'm assuming, in the dump. It was about three sizes too big. He had the sleeves rolled up like this and the, and the pant legs rolled up. And he came out and he looked at me and he said, I look just like you. He was so excited. But you know what? That week he had come to Christ and he was excited about growing in the Lord. And it wasn't just about wearing a suit. I believe it's because he had the Holy Spirit in him and I had him had the Holy Spirit in me. And we were headed the same direction, even though we were worlds apart in the way we grew up. You see, there's great fellowship in the spirit. We don't have to be of the same economic level to have fellowship in the spirit. We don't have to have the same background. We don't have to have the same skin color. We don't have to have the same culture. We don't even have to speak the same language to have the fellowship of the Spirit. In families, if they're functioning like they're supposed to, many times with mothers and their children and fathers and all these things, you see families getting together, right? You hear about family reunions and, you know, Christmas get-togethers and Thanksgiving get-togethers and Fourth of July parties and families do all this stuff. But you know what? It doesn't seem like they're... Or it seems like there's not a family in the world that even though they get together and they have all these friends and family get-togethers and fun things that they do, there's still some sort of drama going on in that family. There's still some sort of struggle or some kind of issue. Maybe it's not big. Maybe it's just a little thing. But there's always something. Why? Because we're human beings. We're sinners. But as we walk with the Lord, there is great fellowship in the Spirit. We're looking at four realities of a close walk with God. We've seen that encouragement or consolation comes from Christ, that comfort comes from the love of Christ, that there's fellowship that comes from the Spirit. And then he, this is another reality that there is in walking with the Lord. There is great tenderness and compassion for our fellow believers if we have a close walk with the Lord. He says that there, if there be any bowels and mercies, if any bowels and mercies, you say bowels and mercies, bowels doesn't sound very nice. Well, in the Jewish way of thinking of things in the New Testament world, they would use like if they didn't say, I love you with all of my heart, like we would. They would say, and translations don't always make sense, right? But they would say, I love you from my bowels. And you think, oh, what that meant was, I love you from the deepest most inner part of myself right it's the same thing when we say i love you with all my heart right it's not like that our heart muscle right is beating differently because of that person no it's we're just expressing an idea that we love them with all that we have and this is what he's saying here in philippians chapter 2 that there is great tenderness and compassion. There is great love when two believers are walking the same direction and experiencing the fellowship that comes through the Holy Spirit. 
There are wonderful, encouraging things there for the believer. So he gives us these four realities of a close walk with God. And then because of these realities, in the next verses, he gives us four ways that these realities need to be applied in your life. How do you apply these things? You see, Scripture is wonderful. It teaches us things. We learn. But if we don't apply the truth to our life, if you don't live differently because of what the Bible says, then the Bible is just some other book. But the Bible is not just some other book. The Bible has power because it is God's Word. And if you take God's Word and you live it out in your life, your life can be changed forever. So he gives us four ways to apply these realities. Number one, he tells us in verse 2, Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded. To think the same. To have a mind that's alike. You see, believers, because of the reality that there is the fellowship of the Spirit, because of the reality that there is comfort that comes from the love of Christ and encouragement that comes from Christ and the reality that there, are, there is tenderness and compassion among believers, then because of that reality, because of that fact, because it's true that all those things happen, then we are to have the same mind. So if Trevor and I are here in the same church, which we are this morning, then as believers who are working together and our focus is Christ, that's our purpose, right? Living, Paul said it, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Then we need to have the same mind. That may take some conversation. That may take some talking and figuring things out so that we're headed the same direction. But if our goal is the same, then we need to work to be like-minded, to be aiming the same way and walking the same way. He says, be like-minded. How do you apply these truths? Because of these truths, because of these realities, we need to work to be like-minded as a church, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Be like-minded. He says, having the same love. When two people love the same thing, they spend a lot of time doing that together often. They spend a lot of energy talking about it together. They are focused in the same direction. He says, be like-minded. Have the same love. Then he says, be of one accord. This means to, or, or, or to have the same spirit. I'm sorry. He says here, fulfill you my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. To be of one accord, this is to be in one spirit, have the same focus and purpose. He's really using all these different words to point us in the same direction. That you're to be like-minded, that you're to have the same love, that you're to be in one spirit. And then he says to be one in your purpose of one mind. This word mind is not referring to your brain. This is referring to your purpose, that you have the same purpose in your life. You see, this is true in any family. If a family is going to be successful, right, as a family unit, they've got to be like-minded. They have to love one another, have the same love. They, they have to be one in spirit. They have to have the same purpose. 
For a church to be successful, we have to be like-minded, have the same love, be one in purpose, have the same mind and work together. And why do we do this? Why could the Philippians do this? Because of what Christ did for them. It, like in my silly paraphrase at the beginning. Children, why should you work together as part of the family? Yes, it's commanded. But there's great love in the family for you, right? There's great encouragement in the family. There's comfort being part of our family. Your family helps to provide and take care of you. You see, Jesus does all those things for us and He does it in a perfect way. And so we must live in light of that fact, being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in purpose. Then He gives us a warning in verse 3. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. This means don't live for selfish ambition. That's what's meant by strife. That's you trying to get what you want. Oh, that never happens in a house, does it, kids? Houses are not nice places to live with other family members when everybody's just out for themselves. If I have to have my way about what we watch on TV all the time, it makes for strife. If I have to have my way about what I eat at the house and I don't want to eat what anybody else is eating, people are fighting about that. If I have to have my way about where I put my dirty socks all the time, all over the house, it makes for strife, doesn't it? If people don't think of the needs of others and they just want to take care of themselves, it doesn't work very well. Let nothing... Did you hear that word? Nothing... You say, well, I want to have a little bit of selfish ambition. Because <laughs> everybody likes to take care of themselves, right? That we're really good at taking care of ourselves. And yet he says, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. The word vanity or vain is emptiness. It means empty. It's fleeting. It's passing. Vain glory means empty Glory. In other words, he says, don't strive for something that doesn't last and doesn't make a difference. Right? How many people are busy doing things that don't matter? I mean, sure, it might be fun for the moment. Sure, it might be entertaining. It might give you a break. And it's not wrong to take a break. It's not wrong to entertain. It's not wrong to enjoy those things. But so many times our whole lives are just consumed in wasted, empty purposes. So many times there's struggle and strife and people fighting because they're giving everything they have, their time and energy, to fulfill something that doesn't last. And he says as a believer, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Can I enjoy a moment of relaxation? Sure. But that's not because I'm just there to take care of myself. It's because I know that I need rest if I'm going to be able to help other people. Right? I know that I need to spend time with my family. It's not selfish to enjoy time with your family. No, God has called us to do that, to be with one another. Don't get me wrong on what I'm saying here. I'm not saying, well, you just better work all the time and never do anything fun. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, don't live selfishly. 
Don't be out for yourself. See how you can care for somebody else. Again, I think of the example of a mother or a grandmother. We often think of those ladies as people who just help and encourage and do whatever they can. I remember my great-grandmother Bennett. We would have to tell her, sit down, Grandma. We have everything we need when it was time to eat. Because Grandma Bennett just wanted to run around and serve everybody the whole time. Because she just loved to take care of her kids and grandkids and great-grandkids. And you know what? We loved her back because of that. She has a special place in our hearts. Most of my kids got to meet her, but you didn't know her the same way I knew her. And I didn't know her the same way my dad knew her because she was his grandma. But she was very special. I'm, I feel very privileged. I got to preach her funeral. You know, it was full of people that remembered Grandma Bennett because she served others. She was a sweet lady. We love people who serve us. You know, the people we don't love are the people who are selfish, that are out for themselves. Those are the people we don't really enjoy being around very much. It's frustrating sometimes because I've been around some people, even lately, that I feel like they should care about me, but they don't. (laughs) That's frustrating to me. Maybe that's frustrating to you too. I hope I don't frustrate you that way. I want to care about each one of you. But it's frustrating when somebody doesn't care about us and we feel like they should. But we love it when somebody gives of themselves and cares for us completely unselfishly. And he tells us here in this verse very clearly, don't let anything be done out of selfish ambition or vain glory. Don't spend your time and your whole life just striving for something that doesn't last and doesn't matter, that doesn't make a difference. If I'm going to live my life on point, if I'm going to live it with purpose, that means living for what matters. Selfish ambition won't bring you happiness or fulfillment in the long term. You can go to any nursing home that you want to in Houston this morning. And if you can find a patient that you can talk to that's able to have a conversation back with you, you will be hard-pressed to find somebody that said, I wish I spent more time away from my family or I wish I spent more time seeking my own selfish ambition. No, they'd say, I wish I had done things differently, perhaps. Maybe you'll find some, I'm thankful for the way I did it. Right? But people don't say, well, I wish. You don't see mothers who say, yes, I just wish I could have spent more time away from my kids. You generally don't talk to people who say, I wish I had spent less time serving the Lord with my life. I wish I had spent less time reading my Bible. I wish I had spent... Less time helping others. No, you don't read about that. You don't talk to people that say that. I think you'll have a hard time finding someone who says, I wish that I had given less of my time and less of my energy and less of my money to help people in need. I wish I had kept more of it for myself. Maybe you'll meet that person. But I think those people are rare. Why? Because... I think people who have lived life, hopefully they have a little perspective. 
and a little wisdom that says, you know what, living life for selfish purposes doesn't last. He says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Here's the positive. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. What a wonderful picture of, of godly motherhood. A mother who puts aside her own time and her own energy and her own, willing, her own ability to sleep and spend time doing the things that she needs to do or would like to do to take care of herself. She gives up a lot of those things to take care of her children. There are some mornings in our house where kids eat breakfast, but mom is rushing around and just gets a few bites in before it's time to go on with what's going on in the day. Why, kids? Because mom cares about your needs more than she cares about her own. And that's how believers are supposed to live. Mom says, I'm going to work harder or do something to make things nice for them. Think about it. Every year as your birthday comes around and all the decorations go up and all the amazing cakes are done and then mom's birthday comes and goes, right? And we try to do some nice things for mom, but it's nothing like what mom does for us, is it? Why? Because... Mothers understand this. They love their children and they want to go above and beyond for them. You see, as a believer in Christ, as a follower of God, this isn't just for moms. This is for all of us that we esteem others better than ourselves. And then he gives us one more verse on this in verse 4. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. He's not telling us to be a busybody. He's not telling us not to mind our own business. That's not what he's saying here. But he's saying just like that mother who loves her children so much, she's going to care for their needs and provide for them and do what she can to help the, her children. That's what he's talking about here. That as a believer, I need to look out and say, how can I pray for that person? How could I help that person? Not because I want to be a busybody, not because I want to be a gossip, not because I just want to be in your business, but because I want to help you and I want to love you and I want to do what God would have me to do as a follower of Jesus Christ. I want us now to look at the example of Christ. That's where we were trying to get this morning. Really, all of that is the, is the explanation of how we're supposed to live and the reasons why we're supposed to do it. But I don't know about you, sometimes the most motivating thing for me in learning is a story. Do you like to learn from stories? I know the kids like to learn from stories, but I think adults like to learn from stories too. We love great stories. That's why certain movies do really well, because they tell a story really well. That's why certain books, oh, they just fly off the shelves because people get into that story. There's been some books that I've picked up and begin, began to read, and I couldn't put it down. I've even stayed up all night reading a book. Because it was so good, and I loved the story. You know, when I was in college, some tests you just had to memorize lists of stuff, and oh, ugh, I didn't like that. But when I could read a story about how somebody else had done it, or how somebody else had used that information, oh, it helped me, and I learned it much better. I like to hear illustrations and stories and 
pictures, word pictures, right? Help us understand things. We're going to, now in the next few verses, and in closing this morning, look at, I think, what is the greatest story of all. And the greatest example. We sang about it this morning in our song time. And now we're going to look at it together this morning. Oh, there's so much time that could be spent on this story. But I think you all know the basics of it. But let's look at it together this morning and see how this story can help to frame how we are to live our lives as people and followers of Jesus Christ. Verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. By the way, this word mind is one that we read just back in verse 2. He tells us to be of the same mind, right? And now that, that one purpose living, that single-minded focus, now he says, have that same mind as was in Christ Jesus. What was in Christ Jesus? What kind of mind? Here it is, described for us, beginning in verse 6. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father, the greatest story ever, ever told, and that's the story of Jesus. Why is Jesus the greatest story ever told? Because it's a story that impacts every person who has ever lived and ever will live. That's one reason. It's the greatest story ever told because it doesn't just have an impact, it has an eternal impact. It lasts forever. Not just the story but its relevance to us and the change that it makes in every one of us. Why? Because this is the story of how you and me and this whole world can get eternal life. How do you get eternal life? It's not because you're a good person. It's because Jesus died for you. And He died for me. He loved us so much that He left His home in heaven... He came to this earth. That's what he talks about in verse number 6. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. In other words, Jesus said, I can give up my privileges of being God. He didn't give up his deity. He was still God. But he gave up some of the rights and privileges that he had as God. This is a wonderful picture. God limiting himself to give us unlimited forgiveness. Isn't that amazing? Why did Jesus limit himself? He had it all. 
The Bible tells us he was the creator of everything. So why did he limit his? What a great story that an all-powerful being would limit himself so that he would give freedom and forgiveness and hope and eternal life to a bunch of his creation that had rejected him and done wrong. And that's what he did. He humbled himself. He made himself of no reputation. It's very interesting to me in these verses because there's almost a downward progression. Notice it with me. He says in verse 6, who being in the form of God, right? That's where he was. He was in the form of God. And yet he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He, he didn't have to hold on to his powers as deity or his ability to exercise those powers. He could still call 10,000 angels, but he limited himself, right? So here he is, he's God. He limits himself and becomes a man. Or, well, he says first, of no reputation, right? So he gives up those rights as God. Then he says, he took upon him the form of a servant, This was interesting to me as I thought about this. Think about it. When you're God, you get to determine the purpose, right? You get to determine the plan. You get to determine where things are going, right? You're the master planner. And yet when you're a servant, it's the exact opposite, right? A servant doesn't make the plan. A servant is there to help someone else accomplish their plan, right? If I go out to eat and the waiter comes, he's not there to facilitate his meal. He's there to facilitate my meal, right? And I want him to take care of me, right? If you go to a restaurant and the waiter comes and he just kind of throws a menu in your face and then he just walks away and he's gone for like 20 minutes and finally he shows back, oh, by the way, did you want something to drink? You're like, yeah, please. And you order something to drink and and finally, ten minutes later, he brings your drink back. And you go, what is wrong with this guy? And then he finally comes and takes your order. And then way later, your food comes and, and you eat it. And he just keeps disappearing. And finally, you, you grab him and you ask him, say, what are you doing? And he goes, oh, I'm eating supper back here. You say, wait a minute. You're here to wait on me. Not to eat your supper. You're supposed to be taking care of me out here. You see, that's the opposite of a servant, right? That would be a servant that's not a servant because he has his own purpose. But a servant is one that helps to facilitate or serve the need of someone else. To fulfill someone else's purpose. So God, in the form of Jesus Christ, he limited himself and came to this earth to fulfill the purpose of God the Father. He became a servant. And then the Bible says, and he was made in the likeness of man. Not only did he come to serve you and to serve me, but he took on human form, flesh. You know, we we love our human form, I think. We stand and admire ourselves in the mirror or wish we could change it, but we still love our human form. And yet think, for God to take on human form, that's a pretty big step down no matter how nice we think we look. And God did this for us. Why? Because He loved us 
so much. Kind of makes you realize, wow, there is consolation in Christ. Wow, there really is comfort in love and fellowship of the Spirit. Because that's what Jesus did for me. He humbled Himself and came to this earth. He made Himself of no reputation. In other words, He emptied Himself of His own purpose. He took on the form of a servant. He took on the purpose of another. He took on the form of man. This was required to be the Savior of mankind. He had to be a man Himself if He was going to save all of mankind. And then the Bible says He humbled Himself and became obedient unto death. An eternal God was willing to die for you. And then there's one more step down. Because then it says, even the death of the cross. What a story. He's made Himself of no reputation. Took upon Him the form of a servant. Was made in the likeness of man. Became obedient unto death. Even the death of the cross. You see, the Romans had tried to come up with the most excruciating way that they could to kill people, their worst prisoners. And that's what they came up with, the death of the cross. And there's not time this morning, but when you read through the story of what Christ went through on the cross, just His physical pain and suffering, and then you think about the mental anguish and the spiritual struggle that He was going through at the same time, it's really beyond imagination. And that's the death He was willing to take for you and for me. What a story. Can you see that picture in your mind of Christ being whipped and then being taken up the road to Calvary and then being nailed to the cross and hanging there in agony and pain? We sang about it this morning in 10,000 Angels. He asked for a drink and they didn't give it to Him. He asked for water and they gave Him vinegar and a sponge. Oh, I don't even like the smell of it can't imagine drinking that when you're completely parched and you're in horrible pain, dying on the cross. And that's what Christ did for you and for me. Jesus humbled Himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Why did He do that? I like stories with a happy ending, don't you? Do you like stories of the happy ending, Elijah? I do too. And you know what? If we left Jesus on the cross, it wouldn't be a very happy ending. It would be like, wow, why did He give up all of heaven to come to earth and to die like that? That's horrible. But if you read the rest of the verses that we already read this morning, you understand what was in Jesus' mind and what was His purpose. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, Jesus understood his purpose. His purpose was not to fulfill just his plan but to fulfill God the Father's plan. Remember Jesus, even when He was in the Garden of Gethsemane, He cried out to the Lord and He said, Lord, if it be Thy will, let this cup pass from Me. He he was asking, God, is there some other way that this could be done? I know that these people need to be saved and, and, and this has to happen. 
and I'm willing to do it. But is there any other way? And he finishes his prayer. He says, but not my will, but thine be done. You see, Jesus understood his purpose. And because he fulfilled his purpose, the Bible says wonderful things about him and about us as we follow him. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him. Jesus died the lowest death you could die. And yet God has exalted him to the most high position that could ever be. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's sitting there, the Bible says, right now, making intercession for us. So when you pray, you pray in Jesus' name. And our prayers go right to Jesus, and He takes them right to the Father. Wow. That's a great story with a great ending, isn't it? And you see, that's what God has called us to do. Philippians 2, in the first four verses, tell us that we're to live for others. That we're not to be fighting and living for our own selfish ambition. That we're supposed to be focused on serving one another. But the reason you can do that is because there is encouragement in Christ. There is comfort in the love of Christ. There is fellowship with the Holy Spirit. There are tender mercies and loving kindness for one another. Why? Because of what Jesus did for you and for me. Because of His example, because of what He has done, I too can serve others. It's not always fun. It wasn't fun for Jesus to go to the cross. It was horrible. But Jesus knew there was a higher purpose. He was focused on where He was headed and He was willing to give up all of that to gain something far greater. Are you willing to give up your life so that you might gain something far greater for the Lord? Are you willing to give of your own time so that you could serve somebody else? Are you willing to give of your own finances and your own comforts so that you might help serve someone else? We live in a hurting world. It's hurting because of sin. Self-inflicted pain. I had a good chance yesterday evening to talk with some neighbors here. And Lord gave me another good opportunity to witness to a couple men. There's some guys that are hurting that live a hundred yards from here. I have a burden for them. How are we going to reach them? I've been faithful to invite them, trying to witness to them. I think it's going to take a little time. God could save them right now if they gave their life to Him, but they've hurt themselves and other people have hurt them and they just, they don't really know what love is. Jesus is love. Jesus died for them. We need to be willing to serve others, not write somebody off because of how they've treated us, not give up on someone because of the way it's always been, but continue to pray for them, love them, and encourage them, and share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. They may not get it right now, 
but let's give them the opportunity to make that choice. They have a free will just like you do. And they could choose to reject Christ. I hope that they wouldn't, right? We don't want anybody to die and go to hell. Even God doesn't want people to die and go to hell. He wants everybody to be saved, but He's given them a choice. Jesus died so they could have that choice. Because if Jesus didn't die, they would have had no choice at all. They would have been confirmed in their sin and gone straight to hell when they died. But Jesus made a way. And I think it's our responsibility to give other people the opportunity to make that choice because we've shared the gospel with them and they hear the truth. Oh, my heart hurts when I think of people dying without Christ because of what Christ has done for them. But I truly think most people honestly don't even know what Christ truly did for them. They think church is just some weird thing that people do who, you know, don't know how to have fun. (laughs) They think it's for the people that actually go to bed at night and don't stay up all night goofing off and just doing silly things. It's for old people. It's for kids. Whatever. But serving God's for everybody because Jesus died for everybody.